Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have my friend Jeff Callis with Lilac City Behavioral Services joining me today because we are podcasting on your new Lilac Learning Center that just opened in September. Is that right? Or was it was actually first part of October? Uh, it was supposed to open in September. We had construction delays, so we opened it October 4th. Okay. I was going to say, I too had construction delays and I don't think anyone that's listening to this podcast probably is surprised to hear that that is a real challenge when you're doing construction these days, because it is um, just a crazy world out there with trying to get contractors and whatnot. So um, when did you start building? Because I found out about this, you reached out and let me know that you guys were going to be starting the school. What was it last? It was like the the end of last school year, I want to say like May or June-ish, you had mentioned, hey, I got something exciting coming. And of course, you know, I do love to know about all the exciting things coming to Spokane. Yeah. Uh, so when what what made you decide to open your Lilac Learning Center? Uh, well, we've been working with a few students in local school districts who really needed a higher level of support. We've had the idea for a while. So in collaboration with a local SPED director and OSPI, we uh, decided to go for opening the school. And May of last year is when we kind of got official contracting approval from OSPI and Department of Health uh, that we were licensed and good to go. So we started the construction process uh, over the summer and it's been a been a whirlwind of an adventure, but we opened October 4th and uh, and it's off and going strong. Fantastic. I love to hear this. Now let's talk specifically about what the Lilac Learning Center is. It is actually a school that supports students with disabilities that are not having their needs met in a traditional school environment. Am I, is that, would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's, that's a good summary. Uh, it's uh, licensed uh, by Department of Health as an ABA agency and OSPI as a non-public agency, which means we're an agency that school districts are allowed to contract with uh, if they're not able to meet the needs of a student uh, in-house or in their setting. So it is a separate school and uh, transportation to and from is provided by the sending school district. The population we serve uh, right now is high school age uh, students with moderate to severe disability. And a typical student who would be struggling to have their needs met in the public school would probably be one who's engaging in a fair amount of self-injurious behavior or aggressive behavior or having some really significant learning difficulties that aren't being met. Jeff, that is a really good point because one of the terms that a lot of families will hear in special education is free and appropriate education in the least restricted environment. So that's what all students that have disabilities, a qualifying diagnosis or need supports in a school environment, they are entitled to a free and appropriate education in the least restricted environment. And I think it's very interesting what you're saying there is, is that Truly a good fit for Lilac Learning Center are students where the school district is having a really hard time providing supports needed for them to have an appropriate education. And then we have to start defining what is an appropriate education. And that's why we have individual education programs, right? We have to actually start sitting down and identifying for each student what an appropriate education looks like. And so we have annual IEPs 
Um, I'm sure Jeff, in your years of of doing what you do, you've probably supported uh, students that have been receiving ABA. I mean, because you have a long history of working in this field, but we attend our IEP meetings annually because the goal for all of our students is to sit down and work with our schools to come up with an individual education program so that we can come up with um, an appropriate education and supports in order to help them be successful. So can we just dive in a little bit about what makes Lilac City Learning Center um, so wonderful and a potential opportunity for students? Um, that might need some extra support? Sure. Kind of the the focus of the program is really vocational and life skills. And so the activities we're working on are day-to-day learning uh, activities in the classroom, but also foundational pieces for going out in the community, pre-job skills or pre-kind uh, of leisure skills. Uh, and how do we go participate in the world? We've got a van to uh, work up to doing uh, three to four community outings a week. Right now we're doing one. Uh, it is a new program and we're getting in the groove with some new students. But the the focus there is really how do we make a meaningful impact on day-to-day skills that are going to serve students well post high school? And I love the idea that you're not, you know, it's so hard because as a parent, uh, I have two students with IEPs, one's in high school who is very capable and his is more of an intellectual um, delay just because of his circumstances in his early years. And then my son, Caleb, who has an autism spectrum disorder, and he's high functioning, but still requires supports. And so I think it's really interesting because as we parents and the schools are sitting down to a table talking about uh, what an appropriate education looks like, it's really very individualized because we have students that need a lot of different things. You know, some of our students need more support in those daily living activities. So my stepson Cooper um, really needs a lot of support learning just his ability to be able to have some uh, ability to do self-care for him. That's getting up, um, getting dressed independently, you know, being able to take a shower without, you know, hand over hand supervision, uh, toileting, uh, grooming, using deodorant. That's one of our big things right now. We're really working on deodorant because, you know, young men, Teenagers smell. Teenagers smell. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. And not just, you know, clearly all of my teenagers are smelling right now, including my daughter. We're working on deodorant for every member of the community. I'm starting to offer like, you know, candy and sentence in the morning. If I can smell an armpit and smell deodorant, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, whatever it's going to take for the teenagers, it's actually is cash, but that's fine. I don't mind. Whatever the reinforcer needs to be. Whatever the reinforcer needs to be. But really it's different for each student. And I think it's also when you're talking about community engagement, that is something I think that it's really difficult for some of the school districts to really be able to meaningfully work on that community engagement piece, you know, because you're taking them out. And I know that there's, they do it. It's just more challenging, especially in the world of COVID. I can't even imagine what that looks like now. So I think it's really interesting that that is actually a a much bigger piece. It sounds like of your program is that community engagement working up to three or four times a week. Could you tell me in in your vision of what this will look like in the future? Because right now it's just onboarded. You started in October, um, you're just getting into your groove, but what would that look like in your mind when you see it come like full circle and and your students are able to do that community engagement piece? What will it look like when you're accessing that within the school? Well, like you said, it'll, it, it, the program varies based on the needs of each individual student. 
And so we've set up a program that can offer a variety of opportunities based on each kid's individual need. We've got a good sized kitchen where we're working on meal prep and uh, cooking skills. We've got a laundry facility where we're working on laundry skills. We're working on kind of those day-to-day life skills that will help kids as they move forward in life. As far as the community access pieces, we've got a few opportunities with local businesses that we're working on kind of finalizing where we'll be working on pre-vocational skills uh, directly uh, coordinating with uh, them in working with the public. So depending on the kid, we could be working on kind of busing skills uh, or, you know, restaurant prep. So not necessarily those public facing skills or some students might work on those more public facing skills of taking an order down, um, communicating it to kitchen staff and uh, doing the money exchange as far as that. Purchasing skills is kind of a foundational one for all students to have a level of independence that they might not otherwise get uh, in future uh, adult life. Uh, If you can navigate your way into the community, go into a a community location, find two or three items that that you need to purchase, uh, make that purchase exchange at the register, and then navigate your way out while, you know, navigating all those social rules and and little little moments uh, in that routine. That's a big skill for kids to have, and it's one that's pretty impactful as far as being in a less restrictive environment in the future. Oh my goodness. Yes. Even just going into a restaurant and being able to use the menu to pick out what they would like to have as like a menu item as a person sitting there as a guest. Uh, Grocery shopping is another one, you know, being able to, you know, have four things on the list, go into the grocery store, stick to the four things on the list and not, you know, that's the, the needs versus the wants is something that we're, we're working towards when we're in the grocery store. Cause there's a lot of things that they would like, whether or not they need those as grocery items for survival is a totally different story. Um, but know, I love- A lot of us have to work on that skill even when we're adults. Oh my goodness. I always tell my kids, rule number one, never go to the store when you're hungry because you are going to end up buying way more things that you really don't need. I mean, am I right, Jeff? That's why I have Cheetos in the cupboard. <laughs> So true. You should also keep some of those in the car so you can shove a few in your mouth. <laughs> on the way to the store, then I'm not hungry. Yeah, exactly. On the way to the, walk you to the store, then you're not hungry anymore and you're ready to like start shopping. So that's great. I'm excited to hear that you're working with different local businesses because as I have said many, many times, I really think that we have a lot of talented individuals to offer our community in terms of a workforce. And as you know, everywhere you are looking left and right billboards, every window, it seems that there's lots of help wanted. And I, so I, I really do feel like there's a great opportunity if we can get our loved ones, you know, thinking vocationally and we can get schools thinking vocationally, that there's a lot of wonderful opportunities out there for employment. I think employers are starting to have that open mindset about what we can bring to the table in terms of our loved ones who have autism or other disabilities. And so um, I'm guessing as you move forward through this program, those are going to be more and more conversations that you're going to be having with community partners. We'll keep working on expanding kind of that list of opportunities and COVID has certainly been a challenge in some of that as uh, businesses have only recently been more open to uh, allowing extra folks in. Um, And I know that's been a challenge for a lot of local high school programs is uh, how many extra people do you want to allow allow in the back of the business and how much uh, additional risk are, are folks willing to take on? So I I see that starting to settle in. Uh, So it's something we'll keep expanding as we move forward. I think one of the biggest kind of components to share about the program uh, as opposed to, or in terms of 
the needs we can meet that can't be typically met in uh, in some public school settings is that it's a one-to-one ABA supported program. And uh, a lot of kids um, really struggle to make meaningful progress uh, on their IEP goals and, and access that free and appropriate public education because they need a higher level of intensity of support. And so that's those are the kids we're really set up to serve our uh, kiddos with moderate to severe disability who are struggling to make progress. We've got one-to-one ABA techs, uh, oversight by a behavior analyst, and then a SPED teacher on site, um, kind of overseeing all those pieces uh, to make sure we're implementing really consistent programming that drives kids forward. Very interesting that you're talking about what meaningful, when we're talking about meaningful you know, progress. And it's interesting because right now the state of Washington is working on their strategic plan for state special education. And I, in one of the meetings, I took a screenshot and I'm trying to pull it up here so I can say this with accuracy. It was interesting because when we're talking about the topic was results driven accountability matrix. When we're looking at our results, and this is on a state level, this has nothing to do with individual school districts. And this is from the Washington Office of Superintendents Public Instruction of Public Instruction. When we're talking about compliance, when we're talking about meeting what is in an actual IEP, overall, we the state of Washington, in terms of compliance with IEPs, is close to 100% compliance. However, when you're actually measuring the results and the students in that have those IEPs meeting their goals, do you know that the results of those goal piece is only 50%? And so I think it's really important when you're talking about that, because one of the you know, as we're working on a strategic plan for the state of Washington special education, one of the things that, you know, I'm sitting on the committee for that, um, you know, results, you know, how do we measure success? And again, if we're in compliance, that's one element of it. But just because we're in compliance doesn't mean that we're actually having the outcomes that we want when it comes to the results and measuring those goals. And so I think it's really important. And and now the state of Washington is recognizing, you know, yeah, you can be 100% compliance, but if you only have 50% of the students meeting the goals, of those IEPs and we're not doing it right, you know? And so I think it's really nice that we're having these conversations about different educational models that can, can, you know, really weigh in and improve the ability for some of our students to be able to have, you know, to be able to meet some of those goals. And so that's very cool because I, I had to take screenshots of some of those because I found it so interesting when we're looking at what that looks like. So I think, you know, when we're looking at, education, when it comes to individuals with IEPs, it really, again, we're always think, thinking about individualized. And I, I can't tell you how many families we work with a lot that one of the biggest obstacles is getting a one-on-one for their students. So I think it's really awesome that as part of what your program provides is that one-to-one, which is amazing. I'm always focused on, for me, I'm, I'm focused on those, what's going to serve my kiddo Um, best in life. And while academic success, there's a certain amount of academics that I do need Caleb to be able to do when it comes to mathing, you know, I call it mathing um, because, you know, you got to be able to go into a grocery store. You have to be able to budget. You have to be able to, you know, understand, you know, how to mathematically, 
you know, derive at, at, at a figure in order to answer a problem. Um, you have to be able to, you know, calculate time. Like when you're tra- traveling on a bus, if he's not going to be a, a driver and he's going to utilize public transportation, you have to be able to estimate how much time you need so that you're not late for this, that, or the other. So there's a lot of things. And so I've always really wrestled. And I know some of my other parents who have kiddos that are more significantly impacted. When we talk about um, my stepson, Cooper, you know, we really struggle with how much is really, how much do we need to push true academics like math, reading, writing, and then how much of education at a certain point needs to be more of those real applicable hands-on learning of life skills, um, food, you know, um, accessing the community and different things like that. So what's your kind of feel on it? Because it's kind of, you feel like you're giving up, Jeff, you know, if we're being honest, there's a certain amount of time where when you're raising a child with a significant disability that you're just like, you know what, I could give two hoots about some of these other academic things, you know, um, at what point do I need to shift my focus so that we're working earlier on some of these life skills? Is there a benefit to, I mean, as an ABA provider, it's really hard to know when you kind of start switching over to the applicable elements of life, you know, self-care and all those things versus some of those academics. Do you have any words of wisdom for us parents that are really kind of internally wrestling with at what point should we be in a school environment, should be switching over to more you know, life skill and what's going to serve them best in the world. You know, it's a, again, it's an individualized question of when to make that shift, but uh, typically by high school uh, for kiddos that we're looking at who are enrolled in a self-contained environment, the shift needs to be towards more functional application of math, reading, writing. What is the impact in day-to-day life of how, how is this individual going to use this skill? Uh, So some and some kids that's reading for for pleasure or reading a short story other kids it's reading a menu and then being able to uh, make some choices off of it or it's writing down a schedule of activities and then following it so mm-hmm. it, it really depends on the student what when that shift kind of makes sense but in that middle range uh, is typically that kind of age period and do you think we're waiting to until like do you think that that needs to be considered earlier on for some kids, uh, there's there's certainly benefit towards shifting to more functional instruction, uh, even in towards the end of elementary and beginning of middle school. Uh, if we're not making meaningful progress in academics for academic sake, then shifting gears and looking at how do we apply these skills in day-to-day life really makes a lot of sense. I think you can integrate into curriculum even before then, and, and it's less about making a, an entire shift and more about thinking for any skill, especially in an IEP, what's going to be the impact or the usefulness of this skill? Mm-hmm. And so there's a point at which uh, we're, uh, some special ed services are designed to catch a kid up to uh, be uh, academically on par or, or pretty close to the same age peers. Uh, other special ed services are designed to build alternative skills with uh, perhaps some accommodations or supports. You mentioned navigating in the community. Um, and, you know, a bus system and knowing I need to be on time. Uh, Google Assistant or Siri does that for me. My phone reminds me, hey, it's time to leave for this appointment. And it knows the travel time based on my calendar and where I'm at. So now that we're getting a lot more AI and kind of uh, high tech devices for these types of things, there's ways to uh, build independence by using a tool rather than necessarily needing to learn all the pieces that go behind it. Yes. 
that's a catch 22 because the internet goes down uh, as this call has demonstrated. So um, it's something you always want to be thinking of. What if that's not available? Yeah. Or your battery goes dead. I mean, Lord knows that that happens. So a communication device on an iPad is an amazing tool until the battery dies. And at which point, what's the backup plan? And so it's just important to always have that consideration as you're thinking about skills you're teaching. I think that's absolutely true. One of the things that we as parents often find ourselves saying is, is that, oh, we wish we would have worked on this sooner. If I had a nickel for every time I have personally as a parent thought, oh, I wish I would have worked on this sooner or had a conversation with a parent, which who said, I wish someone would have told me I needed to work on this sooner. I think that I would have, I would have a self-funding mechanism here at the Isaac Foundation, truly, because there's always a lot of regret. I knew then what I know now, hindsight being 2020. Um, and so that's the reason why I ask these questions is that, especially when I work with employment coaches um, who are working with individuals with autism to help them, you know, learn vocational skills so that they can achieve some of the, you know, occupation, occupational goals that they have in terms of ideal jobs. One of the things that a lot of job coaches will say is, is that, you know, we just wish that we could start getting working with some of these students much earlier. And so I, that's the part of the reason why I'm putting on the spot and asking that question is, is that as a parent, I wrestle with, you know, at what point am I, do I abandon ship on this concept that my son is going to be able to do geometry or pre-algebra? You know, is that really where I need to be spending, spending a lot of my functional time with him versus um, other areas that are going to serve him better? Artificial intelligence is fantastic. I personally rely on it so much. I don't know what I would do without it. I'm with you, Jeff, but what happens when it fails? And that's where, you know, batteries, oh gosh, that's the other thing too, as a parent, if I also had a nickel for every time a kid has lost a power cord, the plug-in box or the power was out and they don't realize that you can't can't just stick, still plug it into the wall and have magic happen when the power's out. I, again, another self-funding mechanism for me. I could just be a rich person. When we're talking about the school, how many students do you currently serve? Uh, we're currently set up to serve six and we have three open spots at the moment. Fantastic. Can we talk about kind of the process if families were interested in, in knowing how this might, if their child would be a candidate or how, what is the process? Because I can only, you know, there's obviously all things require funding. And so how would a family go about accessing a program like yours? Kind of that process, because it's not just, you know, you wake up one day and you call your school and say, you know, I changed my mind. We're going to switch over to a different school district or this, it's, you know, because it is a private opportunity that obviously requires navigation. Can you speak to what that process looks like, Jeff? Yes, it is a, um, a private business that does require funding for, for the service. So that's a school district contracted uh, kind of arrangement. So really, I'm, I've encouraged a fair number of families, if they think their students' needs aren't being met by the services they're currently receiving, they need to have that conversation with the IEP team and identify what are those needs that aren't being met and what can we do to meet them. And our placement is appropriate for students when those needs aren't being met and the school district doesn't have the internal resources or capabilities to meet those needs in a meaningful way. But oftentimes there's other supports that can be added prior to considering an offsite placement. Uh, This is, as far as least restrictive environment goes, our placement is a fairly restrictive environment. It's not in a student's home school. They're not going to get the same level of access to uh, gen ed peers that they would in their home school. Um, They might get more access to other kind of community supports and really focused uh, applied behavior analysis instruction. 
Um, but those are those are factors to weigh, and that's a decision the whole IEP team needs to be involved in as far as that consideration. You know, with COVID and just the shortage of teachers, substitutes, paras, um, I know actually we even have turnover and admin in special education in some of our school districts where some of those roles are not being uh, filled. And hopefully this is going to correct itself, but I don't say that this is going to be a situation that can be helped overnight. Is this something where it's a permanent switch over to Lilac Learning Center or is it, can it be something where, is it year to year? Like, how does that work? Well, I mean, it works the same as any kids uh, IEP based services where we evaluate the service on an annual basis uh, with an annual IEP review. And so there's there's no requirement. It's not a, we're going to enroll uh, this student and then they're committed to the end of their uh, educational services. And for all students, if we can build skills to the point and then program generalization back into their home school, that, that, that'd be a meaningful goal uh, to achieve. It depends on the kid whether or not that's the way you know, we'll target our programming. But if we've built uh, kind of behavioral capacity and instructional capacity to the point where we can transfer it back to the school district, um, that's in the best interest of every student to be served in their home school with gen ed peers as much as possible, being a part of their local community. Absolutely. That is a really good point, because I know that that was one of, you know, concerns that, you know, when you exit out of your school district, per se, in the traditional way, whether or not there's the opportunity to go back as a functional goal. Now, you still have IEPs because that's part of the process. So can we, you know, talk about that? You don't, just because you're moving into Lilac Learning Center, we're not necessarily saying, oh, there's no IEPs because now this is ABA. That is not at all what happens, correct? No, it's uh, probably a more uh, intensive IEP than we might have written in the past. As we we come on board, uh, we'll we'll identify all the goals and skills we need to work on, um, and take the IEP that comes with the student. And uh, we may at times need to amend it based on performance we're seeing in the in the center or goals we want to add. But that's a conversation we have with every family is what are the goals we're working on and uh, and are we meeting those goals? So. What does it look like when you're working with parents? Because I have to assume that it, this is probably very much maybe in some cases more collaborative with the families in the sense that, you know, sometimes it, it happens that IEPs are kind of, you set it and you forget it. You don't forget it. You're working on all of those things, but you don't reevaluate that IEP for until the next cycle um, when it's time to review the IEP. So do you have, um, is it something where you're always in communication with the parents, giving that feedback, adjusting goals where necessary? Um, How does that process work? Well, you know, an IEP is about setting those long-term annual goals in the context of where do we want to get this student over the next few years. And so we're not amending IEPs, you know, every week or two. Uh, It's about setting that goal for for the year. And then progress reporting of how are we doing to meet that is similar to in a school district. Uh, Formal progress reporting is every uh, trimester. However, we're looking at data every week and uh, as a team on an every other week basis to really uh, identify are we... um, headed in the right direction to meet those goals by the end of the year. And if we're off track or we're seeing different performance than an assessment showed or uh, that than we were expecting, then that's a conversation we have uh, as far as internal first. Do we need to amend a goal or do we need to change instruction? Um, and if we need to amend a goal, then we have that conversation with families. 
And I have to assume if there becomes a more emergent behavioral need or concern, then obviously it's not that that's not going to be considered and perhaps added to an IEP if something, you know, because things happen, emerging situations, changes, um, and it's possible to then continue to add if we see something that's very emergent that needs to be addressed. Oh, of course. When we think about your school, I mean, number one, when you started Lilac City Behavioral Services, did you ever think that, I mean, because how old is Lilac City Behavioral Services? Is it five, six years old? We'll turn six this March. Okay. See, that's what I was thinking. And when you started Lilac City Behavioral Services, did you ever think that you would be actually launching a school? Perhaps maybe you had it in your mind, but did you ever think it was going to happen this soon? You know, I don't know that I had a timeline in my head. I've had uh, a dream for a program like this since uh, I was in student teaching. Um, and and that, oh, don't ask me how many years ago now. I, I don't like math. <laughs> but we have calculators. <laughs> you know, our, our, our communities needed a, a, a more intensive placement option for students with moderate to severe disabilities for a while now. And I've really had that dream of uh, opening a program like this for quite some time. So it's it's been wonderful to have the opportunity to do it and, and jump into it with a few local school district partners. And it really is a, a very collaborative effort as far as instruction for students. If families think it uh, is a need or, or could fill, fulfill a need that isn't being met, then that process is have that conversation with the IEP team. And uh, if the team agrees, then the school district can reach out to us to kind of initiate that process. And true to your abilities and just being phenomenal, you are actually in the process of connecting with all the special education directors in our area because it's just good for them to know what opportunities are available in our community as well. So while be it, you may be listening to this podcast thinking, oh my gosh, this is an answer to a prayer. Um, don't panic if, you know, because you have just, I mean, you just opened in October. We are recording this in November. Um, so not all the school districts are actually aware of this opportunity for students that need more specific or intensive supports. So um, have grace for now, because I know that you're having conferences with all of the special education directors, just letting them know them know about your program. Is that right? I've been reaching out to them since this summer and kind of sharing a little info about the program. But now that we're kind of up and running, it's kind of sharing some details of how's it going. Here's what that uh, intake and contracting process looks like. Here's the services we provide. Uh, because we really are here as a help and support for the, the students that need more intensive supports. That is so true. And as all things, Jeff, people like to see nobody, people are afraid to be the first, the pioneer, right? Um, so I think too, a lot of the directors of special education are watching to see the success of it and kind of learn more about that process and, and um, you know, how the success of your students. And I understand, I, I happen to know, and I will not name names, but I happen to know um, a, a couple students that are in your program and, and it sounds like it's going really well. Not to say that there's not, I mean, we have challenges every Every day in education. I had one today, Jeff, you want to hear what my challenge was today? Actually, it was yesterday and today. Um, my son got a haircut over the weekend. It didn't go well. And now he's refusing to go to school. Uh, so how do you have that conversation with his, um, his IEP team? Like, hey, so Caleb's going to be a bear to deal with because he's uncomfortable because of his hair. So can we have a hat accommodation? Because that was the other thing too. It's like, we're just going to wear a hat can't wear hats. Um, so anyway, it's just funny because, um, you know, nothing ever goes as we plan. Caleb is, is a fantastic kid. And I, I, I think it's safe to say that on most days they adore, um, having him in class, but he didn't end up going to school yesterday because he was still super upset and he wanted to have till today, hoping his hair would grow while he slept. 
Um, hey, sometimes it grows faster. You never know. You never know. Um, he is going through puberty. So, you know, he is stretching every, I mean, in a span of four days, he actually did grow half an inch. That's a real deal. But um, I just think it's funny because, you know, with all things, you know, you're um, adjusting, evaluating, and just making your program better every single day. So I think that it's wonderful to have you. So looking forward, looking into the future, Jeff, how many students will you have as part of the school? Or are you really not wanting to define that? I think as we move forward, my my biggest, the piece that's of most importance is growing really well. Uh, I don't care to grow crazy fast and have, you know, 15 classrooms. Um, probably the goal over the next few years would be to grow to three or four classrooms. Um, and our classroom size is six to eight students. And that's really going to be dependent upon uh, the composition of each individual classroom. We don't want to overload any one team or, or any one group. Uh, we, they need to be able to engage in instruction well and kind of work cohesively as a group. So it's going to be kind of slow and steady wins the race in, in terms of uh, making sure we're ensuring uh, high quality services to every student, not just a, a, a rapid expansion of, of services. And they go through the age of 21. Is that right? Um, as with all SPED services, uh, we can go up to age 21. Perfect. Awesome. Any final thoughts as we wrap up this podcast, Jeff? Um, I just want to say thanks for having me on and uh, the opportunity to share a little bit about the Learning Center. And like you said, uh, if uh, families are interested, it's a good conversation to have with uh, their SPED team. And uh, I've been sharing information about the program with local SPED directors. So uh, if families believe it's a a need that needs to be filled and they think Lilac Learning Center can do it, that's the way to have that conversation. Sometimes those needs can be met with additional supports and not needing a more restrictive placement. Um, our placement's appropriate when that's not the case and, and when more intensive supports are needed. Yeah, very cool. Our listeners can't see us because we are recording via Zoom, but Jeff was also representing today Isaac Foundation with his coffee cup. Um, it is an Isaac Foundation tumbler. Oh, and it looks well used, Jeff. So I am very impressed. That's um, because it went through the dishwasher and apparently they're not supposed to go through the dishwasher. Well, I don't have a dishwasher, Jeff. So that is a very good point. I don't know because, oh. yeah, so... Yeah. Took some of the paint off. Yeah. So are you calling my tumbler junkie? No, I'm just saying I should have put it through the dishwasher. <laughs> I'm totally getting I didn't want to wash it by hand. That seemed like too much effort. I put it in the dishwasher. Oh, it's one, of those, one of those life skills that I've got. <laughs> my life, I have to wash dishes, which, because uh, I don't have um, in my downstairs um, apartment house, I don't have a dishwasher yet. I keep telling myself I'm going to add it, but I never have. Well, thank you, Jeff, for joining me for this episode. And I will put your contact information in the show notes so that people can reach out to you should they have any questions. If you are a parent and want more information, you are more than welcome to reach out to us at the Isaac Foundation. We'll get you in contact with Jeff, but we'll make sure that that information is available for those that wish to find it. So thank you, Jeff, for joining me. And we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.